Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Off the Waivers podcast, where we cover everything MLB and NBA related. I'm your host, James Andrews, joined now by my co-host, Eric Barnes. Eric, how are we doing today? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, It's been a little bit, but we're back to cover some basketball. You know, a lot going on. We still got a heated NBA Finals and maybe a little Team USA action afterwards because the Olympics are coming up next week and they got a lot of problems to figure out. Yeah, so we've got a good little bit to talk about. There's also been some uh, rumors going on in the NBA offseason rumor mails, too. That's starting to get a little churn going to it. And so I think we have a good little podcast for you guys here today. But, of course, we're going to start with the NBA Finals. Uh, we are now, uh, the Bucks are up 3-2 in this series after the Suns originally went up 2-0 in the first two games on their home court. This series has completely flipped now. After the first two games, I don't think anybody really believed in the Bucks outside of myself, of course. But uh, now it's completely the opposite. Social media is dumping all over Chris Paul. The entire narrative went went from Chris Paul deserves a ring. Chris Paul is so great. Chris Paul is one of the best players to never get a ring. To now, I think now a lot of people have completely gone the, on the other side of the spectrum. To Chris Paul does it to himself. Chris Paul is a choke artist. Chris Paul always gets injured. You can't rely on him. We know NBA Twitter is going to way overreact to everything, but I still think we have a great series in store for us. Games four and five were absolutely great. And honestly, most of this series has been great. Even though there's been some blowouts, we still see a lot of competitive basketball leading up to the point where the scores usually just tips in one team's favor. And that's what happened to the Bucks also in game three. So uh, basically, Eric, do you still think the Suns have any shot at winning this? Or are you ready to uh, jump off the Suns bandwagon and uh, come along with the Bucks for the ride? I mean, obviously, of course, I still think the Suns have a chance to win this. Uh, the the Suns, you know, they have looked right with the Bucks the last two games, um, but the Bucks have been the more dominant team, of course, the, over the past three, and that they have a serious chance to win it. You know, coming out of the next game at home, but I, I still certainly think the Suns have a good chance. I mean, they're here for a reason. Um, the they have seemed to be dominant in the first couple of games. They can kind of get back to where they were. Uh, maybe they can find something. But like these close games, they could go either way. Devin Booker's been incredible. Uh, as you mentioned, this has kind of turned into a leg- legacy thing for Chris Paul. And the last couple games, he hasn't really showed up, you know, despite what maybe the stats might say. his uh, It doesn't seem like his heart's been in. He's been a little, a lot of backlash received on him. Uh, and I personally think that, you know, the Suns could really... Uh, if they could figure out the backcourt or not the backcourt, the front court situation, they're big. So that after the Sarge injury, they had a lot of issues trying to figure out what they're going to do against Giannis um, when Aiden needs the rest because Aiden is the key piece to the Suns. But they can figure out that and um, you know, make the right adjustments that they have. We have seen them kind of do. Uh, I think they still certainly have a chance. They just have to shoot the ball right, and they have to figure out how they can, you know limit the Bucks from having what they had in game uh, in game five, which was the first time we have seen literally all year and it couldn't come at a better time in a de- decisive game five. All three of the Bucks, quote unquote, big three, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton and Giannis Antetokounmpo had incredible games. They made a huge difference. And, you know, the Suns, they were still in it for most of the game. So that sh- shows me they still have a lot of life. Um, and they are still a team that can very much win this, you know, even though they're a game away from losing the whole thing. 
Yeah, and I think that's what makes this series so great is that the storyline changes every single game because every single game you're seeing a different player step up or somebody else is doing something new. I mean, really, the two only consistents have been Giannis Antetokounmpo and Devin Booker. They have been the uh, best players for their teams easily. Devin Booker has put up back-to-back 40-point games trying to do everything he can for the Suns. And Chris Paul is still putting up good numbers too, but it just feels like that he's just making critical mistakes and just uh, at all the wrong times, especially late in games where he gets stripped by Drew Holiday and then uh, he commits the foul on Giannis Antetokounmpo right after that to give him an and one opportunity. These are just crucial mistakes you cannot make and I think that's been one of the biggest problems for the Suns is Chris Paul's head just doesn't appear to quite be in the game and that's that's shocking because he's the one guy you would you would think you would never question if his head is in the game. But I feel like sometimes he's just he he commits a turnover or a bad pass uh, or something of that nature, and then he just gets down on himself. And I feel like his defense has also slipped a little bit too because. I think one of the biggest difference makers in Game 5, as you mentioned, was the Bucks getting all three of their big three. And uh, essentially what you're saying is Drew Holiday uh, stopped playing like uh, stopped playing terrible for one game because he was uh, really atrocious for most of this series. And a lot of the blame was going to fall on him if the Bucks uh, were to go down like 3-1 and then end up losing the series in like five or six games. If it was a quick exit for the Bucks, Drew Holiday would have taken a lot of the heat but he had a very good game in Game 5 with 27 points, 13 assists, and I feel like his defense has been pretty consistent the entire way. Uh, but that's one of the big things I saw in Game 5 was I thought that Chris Paul's defense on Drew Holiday slipped, and he was able to get a lot of uh, easier shots, some shots going towards the rim, and then once he got his confidence up, he was able to knock down some outside ones as well. So I think Chris Paul is really going to have to tighten himself back up, and he's going to have to get ready to get back in the game because if he's... um. If he's not uh, right in the head and 100% uh, mentally going into Game Six in Milwaukee, then I think uh, the Bucks are going to win um, at their in their home court. I think too with Drew Holiday, uh, there everybody's bashing on Chris Paul, and I, I think there is some you know truth in that he's not really been himself the last couple of games. But everybody's got to give um, Drew Holiday a little more credit defensively because he's been, despite what he's done offensively throughout the the entire playoffs. He's defensively been exactly what they asked him to be. Like when he locks in defensively, he is a one of the best defensive guards in the entire league. And maybe, maybe that's getting the Chris Paul. Maybe him, uh, you know, getting guarded, picked up full court from Drew Holiday, and and just kind of being bugged by him is probably starting to get to him a little bit. You know, they have all this pressure. It's finally like coming on Chris Paul. Everybody's riding Chris Paul. He's got on and then he's got to face one of the best defensive guards in the league and you know maybe maybe that's caused some problems and like you said like Drew Holiday's been able to come up with key defensive plays for them including uh like you said that's that strip in game in that game five which has seemed to become like almost the defining moment of this final so far uh or at least one of those big moments that people will remember there was the Giannis block and now we'll ha- now on the other end the next game we have that Drew Holiday strip and then the Giannis lob uh, which was incredible. So I think maybe we have to give Drew Holiday a little more credit because I think he what he's doing defensively is really you know pestering Chris Paul, and is something that I think is getting a little overlooked because he's definitely making a difference in this series, regardless of what he's doing offensively and anything he's doing offensively, like we've seen in Game Five, just kind of puts him over the top and makes them uh, or puts them in the position that they are right now. 
So uh, I think that's just kind of what we have to think about this series is, you know, like you said, who's going to show up? It's been that way, but it's been really fun overall. I mean, this has been one of the better series. And I think a lot of people have, you know, started to recognize that despite what maybe the ra- uh, the ratings might say or who's actually watching or who cares because, you know, all those LeBron haters out there, all those, uh, you know, KD haters, everybody that's like shows up to watch those guys and then they're not there and then it's like yeah who cares i think this has been one of the better series in in a long time and you know it's been really fun to watch because it could go either way and it still can yeah and i mean i'm gonna have to disagree with kevin durant's argument on twitter that the 2017 Cavs warriors finals was more competitive because i believe that was a five game series where the warriors that was the only game the warriors lost that entire postseason uh was that one game in the finals and they that that team was way too overpowered and always seemed to have a handle on that series even when the Cavs were able to keep it close but yeah this series has been absolutely incredible and with drew holiday's defense i feel like he just he d- never gets tired out there on the court and that's been the biggest thing because it does not matter how many minutes he's playing. I mean, he's playing almost the entire game, every single game, because whenever they bring in Jeff Teague, I mean, things go south in a hurry. That is just uh, no disrespect to Jeff Teague. He's a professional NBA player who's put together a pretty decent career, but he doesn't have it anymore and he does not belong on this stage. And honestly, he, he doesn't deserve the eight to 10 minutes that he, Mike Budenholzer is giving him right now. That's an adjustment I thought we were going to see a few games ago of just cutting him out of the rotation because there's no reason to to continue to go to an eight-man rotation this late in the NBA Finals when your eighth man just isn't cutting it at all out there on the court. But I do think the Giannis uh, block and then the dunk and at the end of the games in Game 4 and Game 5 are the defining plays of the series right now and will most likely go down as the defining plays of the series if the Bucks are able to win. I think that block that made by Giannis is right up there with all the rest of them that we've seen in Finals history, and that includes both of LeBron's blocks, one on Tiago Splitter and then the one on Andre Iguodala, and the other ones that we've seen because that was just an incredible uh, a gathered um recovery to get back onto Aiton on that lob attempt because we know how deadly those two are on, on the lob, Chris Paul to DeAndre Aiton. So for Giannis to be able to step up and to be able to shut down Chris Paul from being able to drive or shoot a mid-range and then to still be able to recover and get that block, I mean, that was absolutely incredible. And then the alley-oop finish too, I thought that's kind of getting an underrated play right now. Because a, a lot of people like to uh, knock Giannis onto the Kupo just because he's really tall and he's really long, and then they say, "Oh well, if he didn't have his uh, if he didn't have his height, he wouldn't be good," or this, that, and the other. But the truth is, he is a freak. He's one of the more athletic players in the NBA, and I honestly think I think he's the only player in the NBA outside of maybe Zion or or a healthy LeBron that can even throw down that lob. I mean. I saw I saw that coming to a degree. I thought there was a passing lane open for Giannis, and it was just a very tense moment of whether or not Holiday was actually going to throw that ball. And then when he decided to lob that right there, I, I my heart sank because I honestly thought that it was I I didn't think they were going to get it, and I thought that the Suns would have the ball back down by one with a great chance. But that was a perfectly thrown pass to where only Giannis could get it right on the rim. I mean, it was just absolutely beautiful and an even better finish by Giannis uh, showcasing his athleticism. I I thought that was a really risky play that probably shouldn't have been made or should have been made sooner than what Holiday did. But it worked out nonetheless, and that's why it's going to go down as one of the best plays uh, that we've seen in the recent finals. I mean, I had to agree with you. I think that block that Giannis had was so incredible and so impressive. Like, there are only... 
uh, there, yeah, like you said, there probably aren't that many guys in the league who could have made that play um, on both ends that you mentioned. But like that block is definitely up there with LeBron's block um, in the in the 2016 Finals. Like maybe not uh, significance and probably won't get as much play as it did, but like the impressive like way that he recovered and and the fact that like that might be like a ter- legitimate turning point in the series because that was very much a close game. The Suns catch that lob. They could have had a bunch of momentum go their way. This game, it could have been three. It could have been three one Suns after that game going home. And Giannis makes that play, and everything just shifts. And you just have seen like the like the level he's been playing at, and the whole energy of the team that's just really picked up. And I think when your best player makes a play like that, it just becomes hard to lose. Uh, and like everybody's just all riled up, and that's just a defining play where when we look back at the 2021 finals, like everybody should and like will remember that block. That block is so impressive, and if they win, like it will be remembered as the block that probably won them the series. Like, I don't think it'll officially won them the series, but like momentum and just everything that was happening at that moment. I think you could make the argument that it was a really key play in this series and was one of the most impressive plays in the series. Definitely. And the Suns were winning going into that quarter too. That they were up by six. Um, and then they got outscored 33-21 in the fourth quarter. And that block kind of sealed the deal because it was one of those just classic games where both teams were kind of struggling to score to a degree coming down in the final stretch of minutes. And in my opinion, I think those are the ones that make for the best games because you, we see teams in the NBA go back and forth all the time. And it's like, they get a bucket, they get a bucket. We know they can do it. But when you see both teams, offenses just stall out and the defenses take over, that's when just every little play just becomes that much more critical. And that's kind of what we saw in game four, similar to a Cavs Warriors game seven, when LeBron had his block and that was able uh, to, um, Lead them, lead the Bucks to getting uh, a couple more scores on the offensive end to close out that game. And I believe the Suns didn't end up scoring after that, or if they did, it was on just a late play. But I think uh, Chris Paul had a late layup uh, at, in garbage time when it was already over. Uh, but another thing that we didn't even mention about that game was that was the one where Chris Middleton went for 40 points. And if it wasn't for Chris Middleton kind of putting the team on his back and making a lot of tough shots, uh, they weren't going to win that game. They probably wouldn't have even have been in it for as long as they were actually. How good has Chris Middleton been in this series? I think he's been the underrated factor as well in this series where, just like I was saying, Drew Holiday wasn't getting the appreciation he should be on the defensive end, I don't think. Chris Middleton has been there all, almost all the way through this series with you know his consistency, his ability to get a basket late. And you know him and Giannis have been a real duo that's, uh, you know, been there for the Bucks and they understand the moment. They've been really dominant throughout the series, and that's been key. And that's I think why the Bucks have been so good, especially the last couple of games. Is just Chris Middleton has been a guy where you can trust that he will make the big shot when you need the big shot. Giannis has taken it to a whole nother level. He's been a guy that is literally calling people off, like saying, "I want the ball." His playmaking's been great, and Giannis has opened up everything for. Uh, the rest of his teammates to thrive and Chris Middleton is taking advantage of that. And we might be seeing the best version of this Bucks team, especially like not, not might last game, game five, we saw the best version of the Bucks team. We saw what they can do, why they traded for Drew holiday, why they trust in Chris Middleton, you know, why this franchise is in the NBA finals. And like Chris Middleton, he should be, he won't win 
finals MVP, but like if the Bucks win, he should be very much in consideration because what he's done has been, uh, you know, MVP production for them. Like it's going to go to Giannis. Giannis is at the key plays. He's the big star and he's been incredible this series. But Chris Middleton has been right there with him and he's been, he's been unreal. I, like, I don't know what else to say about him. He's been a very much the star, all star player and above that, that was expected of him. And he's, you know, changed the series for him. Yeah, I think uh, the ter- the phrase you're looking for is that Chris Middleton has just been the perfect complimentary player to Giannis all series long because everything that a Giannis can't do on the court for as much as he can do, Chris Middleton seems to pick up the slack and has just been thriving in those areas of just not only making jump shots, but just creating his own uh, sh- shots off the perimeter, whether it's step backs, mid ranges or, or sidesteps, whatever it is, you can't really put a hand in Chris Middleton's face. And I don't think many people realize that uh, before this series or before this playoffs, when they started watching the Bucks. Everybody sees Chris Middleton will put up 20 to 25 in the box score and average somewhere around that with good uh, defense and all around numbers. But the thing that makes him so difficult is you just really can't guard him unless you have a bigger player on him to to just bl- honestly block his shot and not let him uh, get it up in the first place. And the Suns don't really have that right now. They're sticking with like Devin Booker, Mikel Bridges. I mean, good defenders on um, Chris Middleton. But again, it just it only matters uh, so much how good the defense is if he's just going to put it over your face either way. And so I think that's a lot of what we're seeing out of Chris Middleton is every time uh, they can't get anything going on offense, it seems to go to him and he can find him something because uh, Drew Holiday and uh, some of the other guys just haven't been able to create as well as the Bucks might have been hoping for a few games in the series up until Game 5 where everybody just seemed to play flawless. So that's where I thought Chris Middleton really picked up the slack and did a great job and also stepping in the line and knocking down some late free throws as well because we saw Giannis miss some. And then Chris Middleton uh, uh, missed his first one in that game five and almost gave the Suns another chance. But then he was able to knock it down with a few seconds left to go when they were up by three to put them up four and put the Suns out of the game. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think Chris Middleton has been huge. And I mean, him and Giannis are almost a 1A, 1B at this point. I mean, there's definitely a clear distinction because Giannis is so much better and he is literally at the tippy top of the league right now. I think everybody would have to I universally agree that Giannis is a top three or four player. Um, after this, after these finals are over, we go into the offseason and start to rank our players for next season. I think Giannis universally has to be right there at the top. But Chris Middleton's starting to get the recognition that he deserves too because a lot of people probably didn't have him as a top 20 or 25 player. But I think that almost looks ridiculous now. I mean, you don't want to uh, overreact and have the recency bias to one finals performance. But at the same time, I don't see anybody else playing right now. Uh, all these other players that are supposed to be better than him i mean they're watching him on tv right now so i think it is appropriate to say that uh, he is in that uh tier rankings yeah i agree i I think he definitely is pushing into the top 20 and should be you know right up there because he is no scrub and like you said with Giannis, he's it's the perfect balance him and middleton you know Giannis, he's a guy who struggles with free throws but then chris middleton is the star that you know they late game situation they need someone to knock down free throws he's a go-to he's gonna knock him down he's a great free throw shooter and like, like you mentioned he compliments Giannis so well and he's the perfect co-star uh on this Bucks team it's just what what's been around them and eventually finally they've been able to really figure that out and they've really been able to unlock that that tandem and they have been unbelievable this series 
And so, what do you th- what adjustments do you think the Suns are going to have to make other than just getting Chris Paul right uh, to go into Milwaukee and win Game Six, and then ultimately pull it out in Game Seven? I think right now for the Suns, the struggle is trying to figure out what to do when um, they don't have Aiden on the floor. Because, you know, it seems like their backcourt is fine. Kills Devin Booker, back-to-back 40-point games. You know, he gets to play with, like, you know, eight fouls. So I think that he'll be fine. I don't think they'll have any issue there. Chris Paul, he's still getting his stats. I think he should be a guy, you know, uh, a veteran. He should be able to, you know, figure it out. Like I said, if they can get the right matchups, he should still be able to thrive and have a huge impact on the series. Um, I think the Suns right now have just kind of had to get more out of their bench because uh, you know Aiden with, with Sarich out there, their next big man or big body to throw at like Giannis is Frank Kaminsky, and you know Frank again Frank McKin- <laughs> Frank Kaminsky's no scrub. You know it's a great college player, all that, but like Frank Kaminsky isn't who you want in the um, in the NBA Finals. You know backing up your big man and having to you know fill those minutes while he's on the bench and you have Giannis on the other team. So I think that's a key, like a key thing that they've really had to try and struggle with and figure out in this series. But uh, for them, it seems like shooting, they're a shoot-or-die team, uh, and most teams are in the NBA these days. But if they can, you know, make shots, because, you know, it's a, it's a what's called make-or-miss league, and they can make shots, and they can, you know, uh, what's called, kind of figure out those right, like, adjustments defensively. And, you know, they can make sure that Drew Holiday's not going to start, you know, taking off like he did in game five and, you know, see what they can do against Middleton. That's sort of like closest thing, well, it closes stuff down. But like right now they have no clear answer to stopping Giannis outside of DeAndre Aiden. And DeAndre Aiden's on the court, like, good luck. <laughs> it's hard. I still think, again, they have enough pieces where if they get the right guy, the right performances, like uh, if a Mikel Bridges can have like a huge game six or seven here. Uh, if they can figure out game six and get there, he can break out. Jay Crowder can, uh, you know, still be that reliable guy. And then you still get that huge Devin Booker performances. They still very much are in this. They've been close games. Uh, it's just, you know, whether they can figure out how they can like kind of like close down or, or contain Giannis to stop him from being able to really just get everybody out. And, you know, what? I think the key thing for them too has been rebounding too. Cause I've seen just, they're they're getting with the lack of bigs. They're getting just bullied on the boards uh, against the um, against the Bucks, and it's not just like Giannis or like Brooke Lopez. Like Pat Connington's coming in, getting like six plus rebounds. Like that that can't be happening, especially uh, on the offensive end. And he's a good rebounding guard, but it's it's Pat Connington. So we need to they need to figure that out. They need to figure out how they can you know close off the, the defensive glass. Um, in order to you know stop all the second day, second shots that the Bucks have been getting this series. Yeah, you brought up a gr- uh, good few points, and uh, I have a few points as well, and they're kind of similar to yours. And yeah, it's, the rebounding thing has absolutely been huge because obviously Giannis and Brooke Lopez set the tone rebounding the ball. I mean, Giannis, no matter where he is, he's going to contend for a rebound. But it is all the other guys, too. And it's just Pat Connington's flying in for rebounds. Bobby Portis is grabbing six to ten rebounds for you a game. Drew Holiday is up over five plus rebounds every single game. Chris Middleton is getting six, seven plus rebounds every single game. There, there just seems to be so many going around for these guys right now. The Suns have really struggled to grab those. And that definitely also has a correlation with their 
ability to stop Giannis, and that was my biggest concern with the Suns going into this series was how are they going to stop Giannis uh, in games uh, three, four, or games three, four, five, and especially just once once it got deeper in the series in general because I knew that the Suns had a lack of front court depth going into it, and then they lost Sarge uh, for the rest of the series and early on in game one, and that also now has really hindered them. As you mentioned, their only reliable option is Frank Kaminsky, but this is where I feel like a one player in particular needs to step up, and that's Jay Crowder because he's been really good shooting the ball this series, so we'll give him credit for that. But I feel like he's not doing enough defensively. He's not making his impact on the, on the glass like he should for a dude that's so big and strong as he is. And he's also not doing a good enough job of containing Giannis. Too much of the time I see Jay Crowder uh, guarding like a corner shooter like a Bobby Portis or someone like that. And I feel like... <clears throat> They should really be using his strength on the inside to help shut everything else down and put somebody else on the corner uh, who, who isn't as strong. My second point is, I think the Suns need more playmaking, and that needs to come from somebody other than Chris Paul, because Chris Paul is still getting like 10, 11 assists per game, and we mentioned how some of his passes have been off, and he's uh, turning the ball over, and he's gotten stripped a few too many times, uh, more than you would expect for uh, for Chris Paul, so he needs to tighten that up, obviously, but I think Devin Booker also needs to take some more playmaking uh, weight on his shoulders, because uh, it, while he has combined for 82 points in the past two games, which is obviously incredible, so it feels nitpicked to ask for more from him he did also only combine for five assists in both those games and so I think he could do a little bit more just playmaking the basketball and distributing to the guys like Jay Crowder and Cameron Payne and Cam Johnson and start to get those guys more open shots because those guys are really good shooters and they've played a, a high level um role player um uh, they've had a high play or a high role uh, so far for the Suns this entire postseason, and they've been great for what they've been asked to do. But they're, you're not going to ask them to go out and create their own shot or uh, try to make a play for themselves. They need somebody else to set them up and get them open. They're relying on the defense of. Uh, putting all their focus in on Chris Paul and Devin Booker and then Aiton in the middle, uh, which uh, leaves those guys open. So I think the Bucks have done a better job adjusting that and they've uh, done a better job with their pick and roll defense so that it allows some of their other defenders to stay home on the shooters. And that's where I feel like uh, the Suns have also kind of struggled. They haven't gotten enough open three-point shots for their shooters. And I think that's something that Devin Booker can help with because if Devin Booker gets loose uh, just inside the three-point line around either elbow, you know the entire defense is going to flock to him and that's going to leave somebody on the wing wide open for an easy three-point shot and so far these guys have been pretty good hitting them throughout this entire series so I think uh, just uh, that's something that uh, Monty Williams can um, do and just try to get Devin Booker to kind of play make a little bit because I mean, in game four, he was absolutely phenomenal. He, everything he threw up, he didn't miss. But then game five, he kind of backdoored his way to 40 points, if that's even possible. I mean, obviously, he was really great, but I felt like uh, he was just, he shot a lot of free throws. Uh, he just took a lot of, he took a lot more shots in that game. It wasn't as efficient of a 40. And I felt like there were other times where he probably could have made different plays to set other guys up. So with that being said, what's your official predictions for game six and game seven? Um, you know, I think that the Suns will pull out game six, mostly because I want to see this. And I think it's in just one of those, you know, classic series. And I think if we can go seven, that'd be great. I think most people like you have bucks and six and have had bucks and six. Uh, I don't think that they are going to win four straight, though, in this series. I think the Suns will come back and they will put up a huge fight, um, especially. I mean, they're going to be on the road. It's going to be really hard. But I think that, you know, they are down to their their last draw. So 
Uh, I think that we will see a Bucks or a different Suns team that comes out and just plays with heart like the first uh, two games of the series and force a game seven. So I would say that. And then, you know, I still think the Suns can do it. I think they can pull it out and I'll stick with them. I'll, I'll see the Suns win these last two games and win seven. Yeah, so, I mean, I actually said Bucks and seven from the start, and I'm going to stick with that, too. I'm going to pick the Suns for game six, because honestly, I really, I picked the Suns going into game five. I thought it was going to, I thought they were going to win on their home court and keep that streak going of um, each team just winning uh, the game on their home courts. Uh, but then, and then they went up with that big lead early on in the first quarter, and I'm like, okay, yeah, this one might be over in a hurry. But then, obviously, the Bucks uh, came storming back right away and then took complete control of that game. And, uh, but I still think that the Suns, uh, but I agree with you. I still think that the Suns are too good to lose four straight. And I think this one's, uh, going to seven. And I think it's, uh, had seven game series written all over it from uh, the start. So I, yeah, but I also think the Bucks are still going to, uh, wrap it up game seven, um, in Phoenix. Uh, we, they showed that they can win in Phoenix. So, the, um, I think there will also be a lot less pressure on the Bucks if they are to lose because this almost does feel like a bubble series uh, to a degree where it's like no team really has home field advantage. Obviously, they do have strong home field advantages, but I don't think either team is sweating too much having to go on the road and win in the opposing team's territory. I mean, there's certainly a lot of pressure on the Suns going into this game six, but I think these guys have had a fun enough ride throughout the way that I don't think they're, they're going to put uh, too much pressure on themselves to where it's a bad thing. I think they'll be uh, I think they'll still be loose and come out ready to play in game six and then there's one more uh topic that we want to talk about this NBA finals and that is of course the third team that's playing that uh, hasn't really gotten as much attention as I thought they would have but that is the men in uh black and white and that's the referees who seem to put their stamp on every single game this series with just some boneheaded calls that really make people question why they chose uh, these specific uh, officiating uh, crews to do the NBA finals in the first place and that all starts with the notorious Scott Foster who of course has still beaten Chris Paul in every single game that he's ever refed a Chris Paul game uh do you think that the officiating has completely changed the way some of these outcomes have been? Or do you think that it's just been a annoying thing to see them get a lot of these calls wrong, but that ultimately the series would still be the same regardless? I think the officiating just kind of where it's been this entire year. And it's just been frustrating to uh, everybody. And then now it's on like the absolute biggest stage possibly can be. That mixed in with a lot of people who have been watching some of the yeah, FIBA exhibition games and have seen the referee and that and the different like rules and how it is. It's just kind of um, a thing where I feel like a lot of touch fouls are kind of going either way or like easy way to like kind of, you know, sway a game or a series. Um, as well as like we've seen situations like that, that Devin Booker game four where he legitimately was playing on like seven or eight fouls uh, at the end of the game. And there was just some like, you know, there were just some calls that just like, you can't miss that. I, I think that's part of it as well as the, the late game, uh, you know, like replays and all that stuff where late games take just 20 years. And that's just been going on. It's been frustrating all year. So I think what we're seeing is not necessarily just like a referee thing where they're just controlling the game and they're maybe like, you know, having like a bunch of issues with that. I think it's just a lot of built up frustration of how, you know, the game's been, you know, refereed the past like year, a couple of years and it's on the big stage and it's making an impact and people are are obviously frustrated with that because that's just how it kind of goes. I think that personally, 
it's not like as big where they it seems like they're fixing the game but you know i feel like there is some things to look at you know about the officiating the nba obviously it's for inter- the games for entertainment you don't want to see the big stars uh you know not be playing in the game big people come to see the, the big stars and the and the best teams but i mean obviously there's some point where you got to draw a line and, and figure this stuff out because a lot of the uh officiating has been kind of weird especially with like players jumping in the guys uh which is more of a regular season topic but like all that stuff it, it's just come to a point where they really need to figure out um where they're going with this and it just is kind of like i feel like it's not especially with the stuff the um the Scott Foster take like about um, the Chris Paul games. Like, I feel like there's something there where like, I don't know if that's just a coincidence, but like surely he would have won at least one Scott Foster game by now in his career. But uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you can go with this. I just think personally, there's a point where we need to, the league needs to really like take a look at this and think, what should we do about officiating? Because we've gotten like, way too soft i would say i feel like that that's where the, all the old heads are like yelling at it's like this league's way too soft you <laughs> tap a guy it's a foul or a guy jumps into you he's got three free throws coming up and it's just i think it's just a mess that uh we kind of you know have right now and that's just needs to be figured out i think it's a bigger issue than just this series yeah i mean i agree with that i, w- I would definitely second that notion that a lot of it is just fundamental rule changes like the fact that offensive players can just uh jump uh, out of their normal jump shot into a defender and still get the foul call that fiba doesn't allow and a lot of people really like that and i agree i think that's something they're going to take a look at for next year and they've already been, been talking about that a little bit so hopefully they tighten up the rules there but then also we see, like, uh, we also see other, uh, like, touch fouls where, like, Devin Booker or Giannis, or even Giannis Antetokounmpo, as big and strong as he is, there's been a few questionable fouls on him. And I also thought there were some early in game three before the Bucks really took control of that one that, that there were uh, several calls in a row that went the Bucks' way. And you can't help but to think that they're down 2 0 right now. D- did the league send out a memo to the officials saying, hey, uh, we want this series to drag out uh, and make sure the Bucks get more calls this game? And I mean, that's stuff that the NBA has been uh, like accused of doing time and time again in the past. And it wouldn't really surprise me given the NBA's history. And that also obviously brings up the uh, corruption that they've had in the lotteries in the past, too, where uh, stuff just seems to work out too well for certain teams. And that's so a lot of times with the NBA, I don't fully trust them. And I don't believe that the sport is 100 percent organic. But I believe the, for the most part, these officials have been doing the best that they can. But the Devin Booker one was just absolutely inexcusable. He came out of the game because he had five fouls, and then this uh, Monty Williams decided to put him back in the game with just under six minutes left, where typically you wouldn't see a player come back in of Devin Booker's stature until like three to four minutes left, unless you were really sure that you could trust him not to foul. And I don't think, and I didn't think that was the case uh, going into that situation with Devin Booker. I didn't really trust him not to foul. So in my head, I was thinking, uh, don't bring him back until there's like three minutes left, so you can have him for uh, the closing possessions. And then not even a minute later, Drew Holiday's running on a fast break and Devin Booker completely wraps him up and tackles him and then brings him to the ground. And and somehow there wasn't a call. It was just one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen watching an NBA game, how he was able to completely wrap him up and not get him a call. And then I think we've seen a few others where guys go into the paint 
And we'll see them. They'll put their uh, off arm on their shoulder or around their hip, and they'll they'll move them. They'll spin them. They'll hit them. They'll push them off their tracks, and then they'll swipe down with the other arm and get a a block that looks clean and it's all ball, even though there's a foul before that. And some of those haven't been called in this series as well. And I'm and, and those are serious fouls, much more serious fouls than some of the touch fouls that we we see do get called. So I think there's a lot the NBA needs to clean up there. Some of it's in game. Some of it's just rule book changes they need to make but either way i mean we talk about it in every sport in every game now it seems like the officials or whether you it's umpires in baseball or uh even in football it's just every sport people complain about the officials just seemingly getting worse every year and you do want to see them be better for the nba finals and uh, for the nba maybe that also needs they need better ways of critiquing their crews as well so that way they can be certain that who they're putting out there for the nba finals is the best of the best and not just a crew with a lot of experience. And then moving on here from the NBA Finals to some of the offseason uh, reports and rumors right now. And I think the biggest one that we have to start with is this Damian Lillard saga that's going on. Because, man, we see so many conflicting reports. It feels like every week now we see a report that says Damian Lillard requests a trade or Damian Lillard may get traded from Portland or something of that nature. And then Dame has to come out and say, well, no, no, I didn't actually say that. And he's focused on playing for Team USA right now. And that's what happened uh, this uh, most recently this past week was one reporter uh, uh, put out a, a report on Twitter that Damian Lillard had requested a trade and then Damian Lillard came out and said, no, I literally haven't. I haven't had any plans or talks about my future quite yet. Uh, do you think there's still, I mean, we've talked about this before, but my take stays the same that I think the media is trying to spearhead a Damian Lillard trade right now. And I think that it's probably going to happen in the next year or two. But as far as this offseason, do you think that, do you still think there's a chance Damian Lillard gets traded? Um, I think, you know, with all the stuff going around and the situation, like we talked about um, last time we had this conversation, the situation that the Trailblazers are in, it's still situa- It's still like an area where they have a lot of issues and, you know, if they decide to go one way or the other, like you could still see a Damian Lillard trade happen this uh, offseason. I think that, you know, him coming out and, you know, answering all the stuff at the USA uh, press conference and just kind of saying that, you know, that wasn't me. If if it happens, you'll hear it from me. It's it's pretty typical, I would say, of players, you know, going through like a, a trade saga. But this does seem to be more like media influenced or kind of like what they might be hearing um, versus like uh, like what they might be hearing rumor wise versus what's actually true. I think personally, Damian Lillard, what it is, might just be frustrated with his um off, like his front office. I think that's what's true there, and he wants to see moves be made to make his organization better. And I feel like we're in a situation where if they make some moves to try and patch or satisfy him and things don't work out, we might be heading towards that trade. I don't know if it will happen this offseason. I think it's definitely a lot lower now um, with uh, the recent stuff that's come out. But I think the Damian Lord trade is still maybe looming for the possible future because I think that the Portland Trailblazers are really not in a position um, – where they can kind of like dictate that or, uh, you know, do something to really like elevate it themselves to championship contender. I think there's still something said to being good and having Dame with there, but the way the league is run now, like they, it seems like if you're not fighting for a championship on one of those big teams, then you're just not really like 
in the in the limelight or in the shine like the Portland's kind of, Portland's kind of been in the past you know so many years, and, and with the the new changes in the coaching, and as well as like you know possible front office moves, I think it's just frustration that's kind of showing up from Damian Lillard, and I think that you know the media has kind of turned that frustration into maybe pushing for a, a trade, and they're trying to get them you know to a Lakers or a Knicks like a bigger market. I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and I mean, frankly, I just don't think it's going to happen this offseason. Damian Lillard might be discontent with Portland, and he's kind of said that he doesn't feel that they're a championship team right now, but I feel like it's more of going to be a James Harden situation where he'll probably request a trade right before the season starts if he does decide to do one. The NBA offseason hasn't even officially started yet, so obviously Portland hasn't really been able to make any moves other than firing their coach Terry Stotts and then bringing in Chauncey Billups to replace him. And again, we've kind of heard mixed reports again on that, whether or not Damian uh, Lillard actually liked that move uh, to bring in Billups or not. So again, I think everything is so um, contradictory right now. You can't really believe what the media is saying because I kind of get the sense that this is similar to a John Wall, Russell Westbrook situation where the media was kind of really pushing for that trade too, which is bringing up all these reports that were coming out and working uh, their hardest to dig deep for something. And then next thing you know, John Wall was disgruntled by the fact that there were reports of him being traded. So then he requested a trade uh, just because of the reports of him uh, potentially being traded. So that was just an interesting dilemma that the media kind of uh, kind of created that uh, um, eventual trade of John Wall-Russell Westbrook swap. And I could see something similar going on with Damian Lillard. But I think he's definitely going to stick it out for at least the offseason just to see what they do. They still might trade CJ. They might bring in a Ben Simmons or another type of player. I mean, there's potential trades that could be out there to be made. I don't think anyone uh, too big is going to be moving this offseason. The past several NBA offseasons, other than um, last... The past several NBA offseasons before these past two have been very uh, filled with superstars moving all around between Kawhi, uh, KD, LeBron, and so many others. We saw the league completely turn upside down and shake up, and I think now it's starting to balance out for at least the next few years. And Damian Lillard might be the next best player to go somewhere else, but for now, I think he'll stick it out in Portland, and I don't think there's really much smoke uh, to all those rumors right now. But again, we'll continue to see what happens with that in the future. And then in other news, uh, a trade that I do think there's finally some smoke tunes heating up and will happen this offseason is Colin Sexton, the point guard from the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, the Cavs kind of said it earlier in the offseason that they weren't looking to trade him, uh, that they wanted to keep him and continue to build with their young guys that they have coming in. But I still don't buy that right now. They do have the third overall pick in the draft, and the smart pick looks to, uh, to take a guard with that pick, even though they already have two point guards on their roster. That's their two best players in Garland and Colin Sexton. Colin Sexton is the older of the two, which means he'll be first up for a big uh, um, big payday uh, when that time comes, when, they're, when his rookie contract runs out. And the organization is said to be higher on Garland, too. Do you think that there's any traction to a potential Colin Sexton to, say, a Golden State Warriors or Miami Heat uh, to trade where, you know I mean, he doesn't really seem to be a perfect fit for those organizations? And do you think that there's a chance he would be traded somewhere else where he might make more sense? I think what's driving everything is that is that third overall pick. I don't know. Um, you know, Cleveland's obviously not in a position where they're happy with going forward right now. Um, and they think that this third pick could probably, you know, um, do like a big thing for them, wh- whether they use it to maybe trade up or, you know, they have someone like a Jalen Green fall to them at three. 
I think that, you know, ultimately they are, you know, just thinking about uh, where their organization is going. And like you said, they're definitely higher on Garland than they are Sexton. They've kind of, you know, had a couple of years now to see what Sexton is and what he might be. And, and I think what they're looking around is and saying, you know, we have a, you have something here, but you know, it doesn't really fit our organization. So we're just shopping around, see what's out there. And I don't really know, you know, at his, this point in his career, what, you know, his value is, but I think like there definitely are like potential pieces out there. Miami would be kind of interesting be, just because, you know, they definitely need some more scoring in there, but then I don't know what's going back in that trade. Golden State definitely makes uh, sense. Like, what would you be getting in a trade? But then I don't like the fit with Clay and um, and Steph. Like, I think there's definitely better pieces out there. I don't think they're going to want Colin Sexton next to those guys. I don't think that's, you know, that great of a fit either. Uh, but I, I think, like, there's definitely something out there. He seems to me like a guy like the Knicks would go after, regardless of what they've done in the past, like, year or so. I feel like they'd be like, oh, we got a nice young guard to come in here with our with our uh, solid young team that made the playoffs last year. We can really build on that. Um, he can be a big-time scorer for us. So I think that could be something that we might see. But uh, uh, it depends on what, you know, what Cleveland wants and what they're willing to offer because I, I don't know what the value is there yet. Yeah, and I think a lot of what depends what happens with Colin Sexton will uh, matter will depend on what happens with Kyle Lowry too because I think he's going to be the big sweepstakes this summer as he's probably the biggest free agent or player available on the market right now. And you know, I mean, he's obviously not maybe as up there as a top of the line superstar, but he's still a really good point guard. Probably most people would have him ahead of Colin Sexton at this point in their careers for now, although Kyle Lowry is going to be uh, uh, aging soon, so that's something teams are going to have to worry about but we know uh, several teams are worried about that are interested in Kyle Lowry right now so I think whoever misses out on him could also be interested in Kylan Sexton that could include the Raptors if Kyle Lowry were to leave or a team like the Knicks I definitely think it's a huge possibility I mean they have like uh, Mitchell Robinson or Obi Topman Kevin Knox a few guys that they could uh, maybe move in a deal like that along with the draft pick then also the Pelicans, too, are going to be an interesting team to watch this offseason because they have Lonzo Ball coming up uh, with uh, as a restricted free agent with his rookie contract up. And uh, as so far, the reports that we've seen seem uh, make uh, lead me to believe that the Pelicans aren't all that high on Lonzo Ball and also the way Stan Van Gundy played him for most of the season, essentially as a corner three-point shooter and not even as a playmaker, which is what Alonzo's heralded as. So I think that there could definitely be a potential of a Colin Sexton trade there or even Kyle Lowry if uh, they were able to uh, sway him away from everybody else. So I think that uh, Colin Sexton will maybe be the the, P, the number two behind Kyle Lowry and uh, it'll be uh, they'll have a few teams bidding on both those guys. They have kind of similar play styles as point guards. So I think uh, that could also uh, be a big factor this offseason. But I, I think there's a huge chance that Colin Sexton is getting traded for the reasons you mentioned. The Cavaliers are going to need to get something out of this third overall pick to really help their organization moving forward and they're not in any position right now to uh, to not take the best player available right now for who they think will be the best uh, help them the most in the future. Yeah. I think the, the Pelicans thing could be really interesting because it, it by all signs, it seems like if the if Alonzo ball gets like a certain number over maybe like 18 to 20 million ish, like they are just not content to, um, you know, match that offer. Interesting to see if a Cavaliers like have some interest in Lonzo ball. I don't know what the fit for Colin Sexton is and, 
in uh, New Orleans, but you know that could be an interesting move uh, if they throw a lot of ball sign and trade for Colin Sexton, and maybe you you swap some of those Bucks picks in that, or maybe the other way around, depending on where these teams value these guys. But I think Lonzo Ball is a guy who might probably pushing towards maybe a Chicago or you know somewhere else that needs more of a pure point guard. Uh, and I think the Cavs aren't really looking for that. I think the Cavs are in a position where they definitely need wing players and they just don't think Colin Sexton's it. They think he just, you know, probably shoots too much. And offensively, he's not really the consistent player. Like he can score uh, inefficient 20 a game, but at the end of the day, it's not really going to get you anywhere. So it really depends on, you know, fit um, for the team and uh, where that's going. And I think that there's only a few teams maybe out there. <laughs> That could see like Colin Sexton. We get him in. He might fit into our organization and be, you know, what we're needing because uh, he definitely doesn't work for Cleveland. And you know, there's a lot of franchises where it doesn't work either. I thought that. Um, I think I brought it up with the Ben Simmons thing. You know, Colin Sexton in Philadelphia isn't the weirdest spot. I would think to find him. I just don't think Philadelphia would go out and trade for him because um, you know that would. I think. You could probably the only way you could really work that would maybe be like a Ben Simmons type thing, but then you'd be giving up a lot more if you're Cleveland and probably maybe that third overall pick. So, you know, you really have to look at that. What's the best option for that franchise? And uh, I think that moving on from Sexton is, but what's out there is really the big question mark right now. Yeah, definitely. Then moving on here, we'll brief, briefly talk about some of the drama that's been going on with Team USA. They lost two low-stakes exhibition games, uh, one to Nigeria and then one to Australia, too. Uh, going up against Joe Ingles, man, he was just too much for all those high-powered all-stars over there for Team USA. And then they bounced back to beat Argentina and then Spain last night uh, to kind of round out their exhibition record at 2-2. Two and two. Uh, they kind of have some structural issues and a lot of things that's going on. But do you still believe that this team is going to be the one that hoists the gold medal? I think there are some doubts. Um, I, I mean, ultimately, you trust in USA to get the gold medal. We just have been the dominant team um, in past Olympics. Uh, but I don't think this will be an easy ride like 2016 was. I think this will go kind of similarly to how the FIBA World Cup went. Um back in, I think it was 2017, it was 2017 or 18, one of those, um, where it seems like we just have a lot of young scorers in uh, in the league that they're putting on this uh, on this team, and then you got like Kevin Durant, and like a lot of guys that don't really complement each other. I don't think Damian Lillard's uh, the point guard that they probably should have. Like, And this again, this isn't anything against these guys, Townley. I think with the USA doesn't really look at... Uh, these events like the world cup is really a team structure. It seems like they have really just like who are the biggest names we can get was we'll throw an all-star team together. We'll win because we're, you know, that much farther ahead of the world. And that just really isn't the case anymore. I think that most teams that are in this tournament are running at least one NBA player, if not a couple, as well as there are a lot of great, you know, European players out there and, and Asian players out there as well that, you know, can help compete or what's called or at a level where they can compete with these guys um in an FIBA like organized like setting. Like and, and then you look at the Spain game last night, uh Team USA looked a lot better last night and they looked great. But like we're looking at a player like Ricky Rubio who he seems to do this every time there's an international tournament. He comes into Spain and all of a sudden he's an international superstar again. He's just putting up twenty points casually on NBA All Stars, you know, making them look like scrubs. 
Uh, but I think they're sort of finding out their pieces. Brad Beal uh, and Kevin Love were uh, what's called replaced last week. They they added JaVale McGee, which I think is kind of a weird question mark, but he does add some rim protection and some rebounding, which is what this team needs. And then Keldon Johnson, um, he's a nice young player for the Spurs. He got added on for Brad Beal. And, you know, I really liked what he saw. He was a big energy guy, really kind of took over in last night's game. And I think he's more of... Uh, what they, the team needs and the direction they need to go heading into Tokyo next week. And I really like that piece. So not to go on for a long time here like I have, but I think they're heading in the right direction. I think they still look solid and they look like the team to beat um, heading into the Olympics. Yeah, I still think they're the team to beat and I still think that they'll relatively easily come out with the gold medal. The biggest thing with them is, I don't know if it was as much of they didn't have a point guard or didn't have guys that plays together, but they just weren't playing defense. And when you have Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, and Kevin Durant all in your starting lineup, and you throw them in an exhibition game against nobodies of Nigeria, are you expecting them to play defense? Like, come on now, not really. These guys hardly even play defense in the regular season. And sometimes they'll just take the first round of the playoffs off from playing defense. So, I mean, them not playing defense in an exhibition game wasn't all that surprising. But now that they're starting to crank up the level of intensity and really get ready for Tokyo, they're all going to level uh, bunker down with that because they all are at least solid or average defenders in the NBA. So I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to uh, be solid defenders uh, in the Olympics, too. Although, as you mentioned, I mean, Ricky Rubio is absolutely goaded when it comes to international play. There's no doubt about that. But I also, I, you know, mean those additions of Kelton Johnson and JaVale McGee were very surprising because, for one, Trey Young tweeted out that he got snubbed for that. And at first, you're like, well, why would they not pick a Trey Young type player? And then a lot of people were calling for Zion and some other guys to get the nod. And then they picked seemingly two guys who, who almost even never even, you would never think they even thought they would have a chance to play for the uh, Olympic roster. And here they are. But that I think that also does work out well because. They're going to be relatively unselfish and they're going to just be high energy hustle guys who will do whatever it is that Coach Pop asks of them. So I think that they'll probably help contribute to winning more than some of the other guys that they could have picked over them or that are on the roster or would have been on the roster. But my biggest uh, concern now is just what is going on in the world with COVID because now we've seen Zach Levine. He was just added to the protocols uh, to the health and safety list earlier today. And it's just a shame that it's coming down to several guys getting it and not be able to go to Tokyo. We saw the first uh, athlete that was in Tokyo tested positive for it the other day as well. So now I'm honestly concerned if the whole entire Olympics are going to happen. They already took away from the, the fans from going to all the events. So if they're not able to build airtight bubbles in a hurry around the entire world, then I mean, this thing could come into jeopardy real quickly. I mean, yeah, that definitely is uh, a concern with that. Uh, I think as a team, like recently those additions, like as you mentioned, uh, the team USA always needs those great role players, those guys. Like I feel like when you think of uh, Team USA, you think of the dream team and all this like superstars. But there definitely is a place where you need to find roles uh, in that team setting. And you know, Javale McGee, I think again, not your everybody's first choice, kind of a head scratcher. But then you really think about what the team needs and. He kind of provides that a little bit uh, if he's on the court. And then Keldon Johnson, he's exactly – he's Coach Pop. Uh, he already had him in the in the camp uh, running with the guys. He's uh, he's Coach Pop's guy because he's on the Spurs. Uh, and he just very much was 
a guy that's going to bring energy and defense, and that's exactly what they need. As well as you got to remember, they're going to add Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday and Devin Booker supposedly after the finals. We'll see if all three of those guys end up on the team or not because you know some might take a layoff, especially if they go to the seven-game series like we think they will. Um, but they might add some some key additions to this team as well. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you can't blame Devin Booker if he just wants to go home to Kendall Jenner after that at this point. But then moving on here, we're going to just about wrap up our show with that. Uh, one quick closeout note. My Washington Wizards signed uh, Wes Unsell Jr., of course, the son of the uh, former Hall of Famer or, or the current or the um, Hall of Famer, Wes Unseld. I thought that's an interesting move for the Wizards. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about it because I don't know a lot about Wes Unseld. I know he was a scout in the Wizards organization for a long time before taking assistant coaching roles with several teams, most recently the Denver Nuggets. So I think that he's a solid pick to coach this team. And of course, he does have uh, all the history of his father on his side. So I think walking through the door day one, he is going to get a lot of respect from the players on the Wizards. And if anybody doesn't respect him right away, (coughs) Russell Westbrook, I say we just ship them out of town the next day and not even worry about that and let Wes Unsell take over with a lot of these young guys. And I think he'll do a pretty good job of developing them because that's always what his calling card has kind of been was to, um, recognizing young talent. So I think overall that's a pretty good move for the Wizards. But I'm curious to see what all he has to say and what he's going to do for the team and how that's all going to work out. Yes, uh, some, some positive news for the Wizards. Uh, you know, I don't know how much of that they'll have this offseason, so it's good to get off to a good start. No news is positive news for the rest of this offseason. Just remember all that. <laughs> and then that's going to just about do it for us today. Uh, sorry for a bit of a long way off. We were just kind of sitting back and watching the NBA Finals and the MLB All-Star break to see how everything would shake out. And now we're going to be back um, on Friday to cover the uh, remaining of these finals. And that'll be a, actually a dual sports show where we'll start with uh, recapping the end of the finals, talking about that, of course, our finals MVPs. Oh, no, all that good stuff. And then we'll go into our MLB uh, portion of the show where we'll talk about the trade deadline. And we'll give you guys a full preview of everyone who's going to be on the market, who's rumored to be potential in trade, some of the prospects and the assets that could be going back in those trades. And then, of course, we'll give uh, you some predictions of who we think is going where. So that should be a great show. In the meantime, feel free to reach out to us uh, on Twitter at the OTW pod. And then, of course, on TikTok at just off the waivers. We encourage any feedback you guys want to give us. If there's something you want to hear us uh, talk about on the show, just let us know. And until then, Eric, you have anything else to leave with them? No, this has been a great pod. You know, we talked about the NBA Finals. I'm excited to see what happens in the rest of the series. It's going to be a fun one. It already has been. Alrighty then, everyone. Have a great night and peace out. <laughs>